There is no contradiction, according to me, in using digital technology to perceive and represent infinity. But we have to use it and to see it and to represent it within constraints, the one and the two. If we are seeing it and using it in the one, two, three infinity, then we're going to have problems because the material world is limited. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Green IO, the podcast for responsible technologists building a greener digital world, one byte at a time. Our guests from across the globe share insights, tools, and alternative approaches, enabling people within the tech sector and beyond to boost digital sustainability. Before we start, a quick note for my European-based listeners. You are invited to the Green IO conference in Paris on December the 8th for free. I partner with API Days to bring you an amazing lineup starting with Aurore Stéphane, Tristan Nito, Theo Alves da Costa, and all the teams involved in the 2023 Sustainable Digital Challenge. The link to register is in the episode notes. Our representation of the territory depends on our senses, our culture, the data we capture, but also the technical systems we choose. This is where cosmography, the graphic representation of the world, becomes essential to our existence. However, ecological disruption reflects a failure of our collective representation of the territory. This imbalance probably dates from the Neolithic Revolution 12,000 years ago. When we became sedentary, we built systems of exploitation and domination of a territory perceived as infinite. In 2023, we are still mainly guided by this archaic mindset. This Maxim Blondo's quote has powerfully resonated with me when I first read it. Because this mindset also drives our understanding of digital technology, which are seen as infinite and limitless by default. Hence, the use of the words cloud, universe, metaverse, endless possibilities, or the quest for infinite double-digit growth. This verbatim speaks volume about our digital tech cosmology and should question ourselves, what could be a representation of digital technologies which enable a sustainable future for them and for humankind? I am a longtime fan of Maxim's work, from his LinkedIn daily post of beautiful maps to his course at the Paris Political Institute, Sciences Po Paris for my French listeners, which he decided to fully open source as he did for the 40-plus conferences he gave on geography, technology, and attention economy. He's also not a stranger to entrepreneurship, having co-founded the SailCop startup. I hope he will join the growing community of the French podcaster soon, and today it's an honor to have him on our show to take a huge step back and reflect on our collective understanding of digital technology. Welcome, Maxime. Thank you for joining Greenio today. Thank you, Gail. Very happy to be here. And me as well. So, to put things on perspective, I mean, you post every day, including Sunday, on LinkedIn, a nice little text. I, I don't know how many, I, I think you're, you're pretty close to hit the 1 million followers on LinkedIn, though that's just insane. And, and this regularity is just amazing. How do you find I mean, I got it, like the blossoming and, and the, the, the richness of, of our world is a big source of inspiration. But how do you find 
the resources to produce qualitative content every day. I'm just amazed. Well, I connect all my activities, the teaching, the entrepreneurship, the um, conference, the talks uh, I give, and uh, the LinkedIn post. And the result is that uh, some content come to me. So almost every week, I have um, readers that say, I thought about you, here is a subject that you could uh, add to. So in the end, it's like things are coming to me. I, uh, you know, I'm doing curation, of course, I rewrite, etc. But it seems that it's easier and easier to find new subject because, um, I mean, people want to share and they want also to help me to, to find the, the right subject. So in the end, I'm not uh, alone to choose my subject every day, my daily uh, topic. The power of a community of committed people. That's one of explanation. Now, I'd like to ask you, maybe to set the stage, I would love to ask you a simple and very complicated question. What can anthropology bring to our understanding of digital technology? I'm a tech anthropologist. I used to say that I use anthropology, human science, to explore um, the relationship a uh, very ancient, actually, um, relationship between uh, the way we build um, technical systems and the way we think. That's the that's what anthropology can add to the under, to the understanding of a technical system in general and the digital system in particular. So I have a course. Um, at Sciences Po, but also at uh, in an engineering school called Min Paris, uh, PSR. It's uh, one of the main engineering schools in Paris. And I, uh, in Sciences Po, I, uh, my, my course is Programming the World, and I study how we program, that is to say, how we pre-write technical systems, technical structures, and how those technical structures program us in return and how actually there is a link between how we define, design, um, technical structure, infrastructure and superstructure, and how um, it changes the way we uh, develop perception, we uh, develop attention to the world, uh, because that's the place where technical systems and culture meet, and it creates a whole lot of belief systems and that's what anthropology can um, bring to a better understanding of uh, what technical and, in particular these days, uh, digital systems do to the world. And how massive is it, the disruption that digital technologies bring to the world? I mean, is it just an evolution of some set of existing technologies? Or is it something comparable to the reinvention of printing because the Chinese had already <laughs> known how to print uh, centuries before the Europeans or even the alphabet. What kind of level of disruption we're talking about when we are talking about digital technologies? Well, there is a, a British anthropologist called Jack Goody who um, was studying the effect of uh, graphic systems on a cultural mindset, let's say. By, particularly by studying um, African population in the 70s that had, at the time, never seen any um, scriptures. 
written uh, characters. They were living in orality. And he developed by observing what it made to the culture, to the belief systems, to the way people were living and interacting with the world. He, he developed a theory on what he called mind technologies. Mind technologies are pretty much information technologies, but uh, with certain characteristics. And he included uh, language, for instance, writing, uh, alphabet, printing, telecommunication, and we can also consider that digital systems, digital technologies are part of this mind technologies category. And what Jack Goody um, brought to the conversation is the fact that there is a correlation, a very narrow uh, relationship between the, the effect of uh, the arrival of such a, a mind technology and the way uh, culture evolve and the way culture represent the world. And there are many, many stories, archetypal legends uh, throughout the world that tell the story of this moment when a new lot of information suddenly arrived into a society because a new technology emerged and it changed the way people see uh, nature, for instance. And when you just take one of the most famous myths uh, of Western um, culture, the, the, the Adam and Eve story, the fall of uh, Eden, well, that's the story of what Jack Goody could call a cognitive um, revolution, techno, technical and cognitive revolution. That is to say that actually you can see that story as something that happened that changed the way you uh, deal with knowledge and information and that created this balance a fall in uh, the way you see the world nature and the balance of uh, living things and actually ecological sustainable uh, way of uh, living the world so anthropology can tell you that there is a very deep link between digital and uh, green climate sustainable transition uh, I mean, from a very long time. And did you already notice some trends in the way we represent the world with the arriving of digital technologies? Yes, absolutely. I don't know if it's the right uh, expression in English, but I'm going to try. In French, there is that idea of volume géographique mental. So that would be the geographical mind volume literature translation. I'm not sure it's good, but what is it? The ability of information that you can gather in your in your head, the maximum amount of information, or is it something different? Yeah, but it's not uh, quantity. It's more related to space. For instance, our grandparents and the grandparents of our grandparents were living in a village. Maybe they had in mind their city and the valley and the mountains. And that was their world. Like really, the representation of space, the idea they had of the space that constitutes their world was that. And beyond, there were just stories. They had no idea of uh, you know distances and even the names of the countries and the continents, etc. And nowadays, 
I mean, it's totally changed. We can see pictures on social media of every, like almost every places in the world. We uh, can um, measure distance and times uh, on Google Maps. Or we have, th thanks to the, the new digital technology, our generation, and also new mobility, transportation, and uh, new sources of information, a very different um, comprehension of uh, distances and geographical perception of the world. And it also changes the way uh, you, we, as humans, see the world as a planet. Because as you may know, the first picture of planet Earth is quite recent. It's uh, 72. It's called Blue Marble. And um, everything that the digital uh, technologies can bring in terms of imagery, in terms of um, picturing the world, is really changing our representation. And it can go to the right or the wrong side of things. And actually, I've heard that people experiencing this out-of-space experience of watching the planet Earth, beautiful blue planet Earth, but also super fragile once you start to realize the magnitude of things and how small we are, it's 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 got a name. It's uh, I think it's a. Uh, it's called the overview effect. Thank you. Mm. Is it the kind of um, example that highlights what you've just said that it changes completely the perception? And usually people get very very into sustainability after that. Yes, it is. I mean, the overview effect would be one of the most um, distant and global way of representing that idea that uh, our perception of the world can change and it can create emotion and psychological changes. But imagine that this uh, effect, that is a psychiatric and psychological, psychological effect, uh, happens, but on a daily basis. And on the way we represent time and space, uh, distances and what the world is. And also that's also why I'm, I'm a tech anthropologist by, um, I don't know, academically speaking, but what I'm doing on LinkedIn, posting and also uh, talking is uh, more cosmology. That is to say, our thought system, the way we represent the world as it is, And cosmology is a word academically that is used to describe our understanding of space, like far and distant universe. But actually, what I'm interested in is the way our immediate cosmology is changing nowadays. That is to say, the way we represent the world, but the close world, like the world around our feet, the world, uh, the plants, the vegetal, the animal world around our village, uh, our house, our home. And um, it's an infinite universe as well. And it's changing very quickly these days. I mean, in the last 30, 40 years, the representation, the way we picture the world is really changing. And it can be an opportunity if we decide to direct that new uh, look at things uh, in, into the right uh, direction. And it can be a threat if we or preventing ourselves to understand better and to perceive better the world and what is essential to our survival, for instance. And what are the, the main trains 
in this representation of our world, who, which has changed that much in the last 30, 40 years, as you said, can you, can you, I know it will be oversimplifying, but can you try maybe to tell us, yeah, top three or top five massive changes which are already happening? Okay. The first transformation would be the way we collect data. So right now we are collecting a huge amount of data on the world. I mean, it's never been that uh, range before. So thanks to the digital system that all mine technologies, but information systems mostly, firstly, we are able now to collect a huge amount of data. That data can be used uh, for science, uh, earth uh, comprehension, natural earth science, etc. But that huge amount of data can also be used by business companies. Also, uh, it, it, it can be used by um, governments, uh, public policies. And actually, we have uh, now a very deep, profound uh, transformation on the way we perceive the world as organizations, as scientists, as uh, business leaders, as uh, government leaders doing public policy. So I would say the first change right now is the amount of data and what we are or will be able to do with, the, with it. Second would be more something related to imagery. So not only uh, figures, uh, numbers, or data, quantitative information, but more the quality of uh, the things we can see. And it's related to media. So social media, but also TV and movies and um, photo, I don't know, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, etc. Or in China, WeChat and all those social media are shaping a new image of the world by letting us exchange billions of pictures and image every day. It's, uh, it's so we are creating belief system by exchanging a lot of pictures of the world. And what could be an example of a new belief that is that has been created via Instagram or, or WeChat? Uh, it's not created uh, by; it's more uh, amplified, and um, its effect has been amplified. I don't know. There are many. There are good uh, representation. There are errors as well. For instance, um, flat Earth representation. Flat Earth representation. I mean, right now you have this uh, International Flat Earth Society based in the US, but in France, for instance, that is a small country, there are between eight to ten percent of the population that believe in the flat Earth representation. Why? Uh, because. Uh, social media and digital systems are promoting a certain um, picture, so a, a certain representation of the world. Right now, we are in a cosmographical revolution. That is to say, everything is changing, and um, we are in the eye of a hurricane, you know, and it, it, it could go to the wrong direction. And for instance, the, uh, the, the flat Earth belief, It's not something that is just funny. It's something that is really deep. And that's one example on how digital media right now can um, produce 
belief system in picturing the world differently, but we could we could talk about climate belief, climate skepticism, eco deny belief systems that is related to the way we are picturing the world. And the third one that I wanted to mention would be more related to what we could call indicators or measurement of uh, our impact, for instance. Companies right now want to understand better how the changes in the world, climate change, biodiversity, water consumption, resources, um, how it will impact their businesses. And uh, right now, thanks to new technological uh, systems, infrastructure, digital infrastructure, for instance, we can um, implement uh, these um, measurements into our business models and take these decisions uh, accordingly. And that's new. Okay, fair enough. The three big trends, I got it. The amount of data, the way we collect data, the ability to measure or impact. I remember that in one of your conference, you kind of illustrated um, our collective reaction yeah, with two caricatures who are Homo Deus and Homo Humilis. And if I understood it well, it was the reaction to this mind revolution that we are in between and how people position themselves. Could you tell us a bit more about these two representations? Yeah. That is more um, the belief systems that could be emerging right now when we are collectively facing double crisis. One, a crisis of information, and two, a crisis of uh, space and time, ecological crisis, but also identitary crisis, the way we relate to the place where we live. And facing that huge challenge, some people believe that technology will solve the problem. And uh, that uh, if we are, I don't know, building the right technical systems, we can solve any problems, including death. And uh, we are entering a field, a space, that is really a belief system close to religious belief and even sometimes it, it becomes a cult it becomes endoctrinement and uh, it can go very far and that is that the idea of homo deus so the idea that thanks to technical power we can do anything including killing death you know <laughs> which has been structuring our society since we exist on earth <laughs> that things are finite <laughs> Uh, not since we exist. I mean, in the last 12,000 years. I mean, I can go back to that uh, subject, but uh, there are different um, periods in our um, in uh, human evolution, as I see it. So three or four periods. And in the last 12,000 years, yes, we have been developing the Homo Deus point of view, that is to say, thanks to technical system, agriculture, cities, um, transportation, and now digital media and uh, digital infrastructure, the ability to do anything, anything in an unlimited world. And what were this belief system before? Like, Oh, okay. Uh, so before the Neolithic, so that happened 12,000 years ago, we were gathered and enter 
together, you know, living in a in a world that uh, would provide uh, meat and uh, fruits, and um, it's in I don't know forty between forty and uh, sixty thousand years, <clears throat> two or three ice age uh, ice ages. We were living that way, and before we were living in a world with no complex language, so we were really integrated as a human population into the animal sphere. Then we developed language, complex language, and that's the moment uh, when Homo sapiens conquered the whole planet. So it's funny to understand that we developed complex language at the same moment we conquered the world. Homo sapiens went out of Africa and conquered all continents, probably because the, we um, developed a certain way of communicating and it changed radically the way we, we, we saw the world. We became the main predator on Earth in the last uh, 50,000 years. But is it related to Ariri's view on the fact that Sapiens managed to kill or actually other humans on planet Earth as well because they created complex belief system that basically made them able to stick at one, two or three or four hundred people in the same room, whether apps or even Neanderthal, we uh, will never be able to, to do so. And that collectively we were stronger because we were believing to things, that the ability to believe in things were our superpower. Yeah, exactly. I call the cognitive revolution the, this moment when uh, we invented the complex language. And that's why he say what makes us special as a sapiens is the, our ability to tell stories. That's his point of view. And he studied the way, uh, as an historian, he studied the way um, stories built uh, social, but also technical and Indian biological structure that let us conquer the world in the last uh, 50,000 years. So, according to me, there are three main periods. First, like the deep Paleolithic, when we were really integrated into nature. Then we developed complex language, and uh, we became the first predator on Earth conquering the, the whole planet. And then you have the Neolithic Revolution. We were not anymore taking everything the, 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 the world has to give. We became producers we became able to use technical systems like agriculture, cities, etc., to produce ourselves what we need out of the world. So suddenly the world became like a, a huge mine. We can mine to gather, accumulate uh, wealth and everything we desire. And actually what I'm saying is that we are still in the Neolithic period and we have to reach a new age with new tools. You mean we are still in the Neolithic period, but with tools that are more and more powerful? Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I'm saying. First, we developed uh, agricultural basic rudimentary tools 12,000 years ago. Then we developed uh, cities, bridges. Uh, we developed uh, military tools. And then at the Renaissance, thanks to the science revolution, we... Um, I mean, enter the period we call humanism, but humanism is exactly the same process that started at the Neolithic. That is to say, that idea of human emancipation from the natural constraint, in a way. 
except we have more and more technical power, more and more means, and we are still in that idea that we are exploiting, representing a world, land, space, and time that we can exploit, that we can um, dig in a way, uh, accumulate things from it, and we perceive the world as unlimited. And that is the Neolithic uh, mindset, according to me, and we are still in it, and we need to move forward to a next stage, post-Neolithic. That is not to say we should uh, unplug all technology and... Uh, no, it's more that we should think about uh, use of technical systems that is very different because we have a new representation of space and time, of land and territory, and that would let us enter a new belief system that is more directed to care, maintenance, and uh, balance in our relationship uh, with the world. Well, that's very interesting because the, the latest super powerful tool that we've developed is obviously digital technologies. And the representation we have for our digital world is infinite and endless. So how would we be able to move toward this post-Neolithic vision while in the same times we are double betting on the very last technology, which is digital technology, that map the world as something potentially infinite? We disconnected the materiality of our surrounding with something that is now purely virtual. I know that it's not truly virtual because it's grounded in materiality via the, the, the resources it needs to get powered and built. But the way we represent our digital world is infinite. So don't you see a discrepancy here? Well, that's where it becomes uh, mystical. It's our relationship to infinity. Uh, in mathematics, there is a um, character that is called Aleph. That is the first uh, letter in uh, Hebrew, but also in Arabic, Aleph. And it's very close to the to the alpha, Greek alpha, and uh, actually that's the first letter of the first alphabet that has been invented by Phoenician uh, three thousand years ago, on the shore of Lebanon, and that letter represents in mathematics infinity within infinity. So that is to say. We are representing the world right now with one, two, three, four, infinity. But if you just take one to two, there is infinity within, between one and two. And there is no contradiction, according to me, uh, in using digital technology to perceive and represent infinity. But we have to use it and to see it and to represent it within constraints the one and the two. If we are seeing it and using it in the one, two, three infinity, then we're going to have problems because the word, the material word, is, is limited. But if we use digital technology as a way to touch infinity, but within one and two, then it works. And that is called Aleph. That's the, in mathematics, the, the amount of numbers that are infinite within two um, Nombrantiers, so or in English, that would be, uh, I don't know, numbers like one and two, three, four, but the in between. And that's interesting because that's poetry. What is poetry than just 
making beautiful things with um, strict constraints, with um, you know um, limits, and limit can help you make beautiful things and infinite creativity. So there is a paradox, but a paradox that is perfectly clear to me and that we can use uh, to to build a world that uh, we want to live in. That's mystical, I told you. Well, that's very interesting, Bobby. This is the way you would reincorporate the materiality and the resource shortage that we are already facing and that we will face more and more in the future versus the overexpanding immateriality of our digital world. Yeah, that's a little bit the same idea. You know, yesterday night, I was invited to talk about growth, post-growth economics. Uh, can we move forward from that idea of growth? And is it possible? And what is growth? And etc. Well, the way I answer it is to use a very simple analogy that is a human body growth. I mean, from a certain point, we don't want to grow <laughs> more, you know? It's not good to grow more. But we are growing still in different way. I mean, when you reach 20 years old, uh, you do not grow physically with your body anymore, but you grow in your mind, you grow in your relationship, in, in the way you, you, you are, I don't know, trying to reach wisdom or caring for people around you. So that's a type of growth. That's, a, that's a, another way of growing. And that's that idea of, you know, reaching creativity and infinity within new constraints that are not a bad thing at all. I mean, it's a good thing, actually, that, you don't, that we, we do not keep growing infinitely, you know, as body. And uh, that's a little bit the same. And that's, uh, according to me, a nice way to say that we have to be aware of the moments uh, when physically we should not grow anymore and that we should turn our growth into something else that has more value. Do you believe that we'll be able to spot the moment we need to stop growing? I believe that we are right now reaching the tipping point in terms of um, awareness of uh, limitness of uh, our world. And that's a very, very good thing. That's why I think we are living an extraordinary and fascinating and exciting period that is a cosmological revolution comparable to the main one that occurred on, uh, in human history, that is the Neolithic revolution or the language revolution. And what is it exactly, this cosmological revolution? Well, precisely what we were saying before, um, the awareness of being in a limited physical body planet Earth. And that's beautiful because it would let us build, develop creativity in a different way. That's very, very, very interesting. But I've got this the same feeling. We talked a lot about digital technology and the way it shapes our representation. I remember that in one of your conference, you made an example of how the Inuit would represent the word that was different between summertime and, and wintertime. So I think it's, it was a good illustration that the way we represent the word could dramatically shift. Like in summertime, it's almost a free lunch and you can travel for how long, how long and, and pretty much whatever you want. And in wintertime, you're under very strict social rules and your surrounding is reduced to a few kilometers. Um, 
am I am I quoting you or explaining your thought well here or not, not that much? Yeah, well, that's um, how anthropology studied uh, the Inuit population in, in uh, the Great North, in North Canada. Indeed, uh, that's a population that is uh, nomadic in summer, so really, uh, uh, you know, traveling all the time and sedentary in winter. So that's probably why I um, I mentioned uh, those observations, but everybody actually. We have our own belief systems, our own representation of the world. I mean, French people have their own conception, philosophy of uh, space and time, and especially when it's related to the land. American people have their own representation and conception and philosophy of the of the land. And in America, you have the East Coast, the West Coast, the mid the Midwest, and they don't have. So our representation of the world is very cultural. But it's also very technical because what I'm interested in is how technical systems create culture. Because in anthropology, we know that every technical system changed our perception of space and time from the fire to ChatGPT. And um, it creates a new social and cultural order. The question is do we take that in account first? I mean, mostly. I mean, um, in our liberal democratic society, we don't. We don't really. In um, authoritarian um, countries like China or Russia, they do. They really want to use technical systems in order to produce cultural and social order because they know it works that way. So the question is, how do we direct, govern uh, the effect of this huge, massive, technical infrastructure that has an effect on culture, that has an effect on our belief system and our minds um, in a way that is compatible with our values, with uh, our education culture, political um, convictions. And that's a very, very concrete problem that is related to the cosmological revolution we are talking uh, about. And um, What I want to add uh, in this uh, conversation is how do we perceive the world? Well, according to me, there are three main ways of perceiving the world. First is information. We get information from the world and technical systems, digital systems, science help us collecting knowledge about the world. And um, that's the first way uh, we comprehend uh, what's around us. The second one would be more the stories we tell. So belief systems based on uh, stories, on um, you know the power of creativity in terms of what we share in terms of uh, stories. And it's related to communication. And when you are a company or when you are government, You tell stories a lot internally and externally, and that creates a certain way of comprehending the world that surrounds us. And thirdly, you have the direct experience of the world, senses, sensoriality, the hot, the cold, the, the, the light, the dark. And um, we are living in a world because of the technical structure that surrounds us, a digital technology. 
that is preventing us more and more from feeling the world. So the way we feel the world with our bodies has an effect on the way we are building the world with our mind. So there is a connection between our direct experience of the world physically and the stories we tell and the information we collect. And all that is the way we represent, we picture the world. And uh, right now, we have to be very careful on the direction we are collectively choosing in terms of cosmography, that is to say, in terms of representation of what the world is and what we want to do uh, to in it, to it, and um, what is our mission and purpose and role and place as uh, human beings in, uh, in, in the planet. I, I used to see attention as a moral question, like you don't have the right to steal attention from people. And you're the first one who kind of shifted my perspective. I, no, but this is a resource. It's like water, you know, clean water, air, etc. It's It's actually the, the main resource that helps sapiens, as we discussed uh, earlier, to become the dominant species on Earth. It's our capacity to focus, to create stories, and, and that is powered by attention. And that attention is a resource that should be carefully curated rather than, um, than just something on a moral stance. And my message, if I want to make of my message one sentence, it would be, our attention resources are limited and we have to direct them as much as possible towards the world itself. So we have to comprehend, we have to focus on the world, which is quite complicated to focus on everything. But compared to just looking at ourselves and uh, you know, being uh, disconnected from the world by creating digital connections that are you know, not uh, sustainable because they are not connected to material reality, we have to focus, on the contrary, on what is material reality. And what is material reality is life itself, animals, vegetals, the water uh, resources, the, the air, the ocean, the world itself. And um, I'm not saying that we should only think about ecology, natural ecosystems, but it's our interest as humans to heal our relation uh, to the world. That's kind of a positive message, and I'm going to jump to make an easy transition for an easy conclusion, which is, If you had to pick one piece of good news which made you optimistic recently about this ability, as you described, to connect a bit more with the world, pay attention to the world, and, and make it a more sustainable place to live, what will be uh, the news that you would choose? I think I would choose the trend that we are observing in terms of accountancy, which is a, a very specific <laughs> and technical subject. But it's, you know, very related to everything we've said. Accountancy is a very, I don't know, some find it boring, 
But actually, it's it's uh, it's crucial in the way we interact with the world because it's the way we, I don't know, pay attention to anything by integrating numbers, quantities into actions and decisions. And right now, we're observing on a planetary level, and especially European one, because it, it started in Europe, but uh, it's, uh, it's a global uh, conversation right now. Um, um, reflection on how we could count things and how we could be accountable for things. And accountancy is a way to measure the, 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 the activity of a business but it's also a way, or it could be a way, and it will be a way of measuring impact and also measuring risks. And right now, if we want to assess risks and measure impact properly, we have to focus on the world itself and what we are doing to the world. So according to me, the first steps we are observing right now, we are taking right now in terms of accountancy, could be in the next years door to a change in uh, perception and uh, i'm really optimistic when it's related to that particular field and for me that's really a good news and a good trend and uh, we'll see what's happening in the next days and weeks because there is an accountancy war right now and uh, i really consider it's a, it's a it's a critical decision we are going to make in the next days and months. Yeah, double materiality or not. Exactly. You know, when you start it, saying, by the way, I'm going to talk about accountants, and that's a very positive trend, I felt suddenly way less lonely. So thanks a lot for that, Maxime. You're welcome. <laughs> and thanks a lot for joining the podcast. Um, now, that was great. I know that you've got a crazy agenda. I hope that you will not get kicked out of your hotel room and that your conference tonight will uh, be uh, awesome. I strongly suggest uh, every uh, French um, speaker, even if he's not or she's not a native one, to follow you on LinkedIn because your posts are beautiful and they're always kind of, you know, mind-blowing or opening the chakra, as I, as I like to say. And... I think that for our non-French native speaker, you've got an announcement to make. Yeah, well, well it's, it's a very simple announcement. It's just that I've decided to translate all my post, LinkedIn posts in English because I received many uh, uh, demands from, from, yes, from people not speaking French. And uh, so I decided that uh, next January, Uh, I will translate everything and post everything every day in English. So if you are an English speaker, please uh, welcome. I mean, uh, to, 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 to read and see uh, what I'm uh, sharing every day. So from 100,000 followers on LinkedIn to 1 million in 2024, that's, yeah, that could, you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Thanks a lot, Maxime, for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Green IO episode. The references we discussed in the episode as well as Maxim's courses will be put in the show notes. Stay tuned. In two weeks' time, we will talk about the carbon footprint of digital marketing and how to reduce it with two experts, Audrey D'Antoni, co-founder of Impact Plus, and Darmuit Gil, Criteo's CTO. And there is a lot of carbon involved and a lot of actions which could be taken to reduce it. Stay tuned.
Before you leave, the small message from our sponsor. No, I'm kidding. Green.io is a free and independent podcast, and I need your help to keep it that way. I give online and on-site conferences and facilitate workshops about climate change and digital sustainability, so do get in touch if that interests you. It's a good way to allow me to keep investing in the podcast. You can also support us by spreading the word. Rate the podcast five stars on Apple and Spotify, leave a review, share an episode on social media or directly with a relative. It means a lot to us. Us being me, but also Tani Levitt, our amazing podcast producer, and Gilles Tellier, our amazing podcast curator. And stay tuned by subscribing to Green.io on your favorite podcast platform or via the Green.io mailing list. The link is in the episode notes, but you already know the drill. Every two weeks, you will get more insights and premium content to help you, the responsible technologists scattered all over the world, build a greener digital world. One bite at a time.